to Care in the Load podcast. We have Dr. Roseanne with us today. We are so excited to have you, Dr. Roseanne. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to be here and thank you for participating in a conversation about mental health. We all need support today and we should never feel ashamed. And there's so many great ways to help people achieve wellness. There sure is. And I think just what you you touched on right there is it's not something to be ashamed about. Before we really dive in here, let me let me uh, let our listeners know a little bit more about you. You are a trusted and beloved pediatric mental health expert, and you show parents how to turn around their children's anxiety, mood, attention and motivation and their snarky attitude with proven holistic therapies. Dr. Roseanne is a mental health trailblazer. She's founder of the Global Institute of Children's Mental Health and media expert who is changing the way we view and treat children's mental health. Forbes magazine called her a thought leader in children's mental health. Her work has helped thousands reverse the most challenging conditions, ADHD, anxiety, mood, Lyme, PANS slash PANDAS, Using proven holistic therapies, she has featured on dozens of media outlets. So we had talked a little bit briefly before we started here, and we talked about how this pandemic has affected all of us, but especially the children. Through all of your research and your studies and things that you've been a part of, what do you believe is the long-term impact? Well, you know... Not that we need research to tell us, but people are struggling. I mean, kids, adults, they're struggling right now with in so many different ways, Annette, you know, um, stress, anxiety, you know, OCD, all different ways. And people are lonely. I mean, who isn't missing hugs? Um, But through research right now, we have survey research that's coming out of the United States. It's starting. But First, the pandemic started in Asia. So we have research in Asia Asia and Europe. And long-term effect, what we're seeing is, is that, you know, if somebody had COVID in the family, that the members in that family obviously experienced a lot of worry and stress. There's a lot of worry and stress around COVID. And some other research, the American Psychological Association has research showing that uh, Stress in America survey, which is a survey they do every year and have for many years, no surprise, um, 20% of adults are showing increase of, of anxiety over the year before, and 70% of parents in the U.S. say they have stress due to pandemic parenting and teaching their kids from home. Um, so, you know, we're experiencing a lot, and that is not a surprise. The question, Mark and Annette, is what are the long-term impact, right? What's going to happen? Um, And I think there's no easy answer to that. But if we look to other issues, whether it's traumatic events that have occurred like 9-11 or other major events, here's what we know about massive stressors in trauma, the worst circumstances. There's a number of factors that determines how well people recover. So first of all, what you bring to the table is what what determines how you get through it. So if there's a prior history of trauma, if there's a prior history of a lot of clinical issues, this is most more likely to hit you harder right now, 
right? We're all isolated. We're not doing physical activity in the same way. People are eating a lot. Um, And the world, the collective world is like really cranky, you know, (laughs) and um, people seem to be lashing out a lot and there's a negative effect, right? You know, I honestly, in my 30 years, have never seen more people be irritated and angry over benign things than I have right now. Um, And so that's an impact, right? So that, that is a major impact. So what, what are your prior circumstances? And then also what's your resiliency, right? If you are a resilient person, if you're somebody who um, it it doesn't view stress in the same way, you're going to do fair better during this time. But, and then there's other factors, right? Are you living in a home where there's been a loss of income or, or you've had a move or people or your parents are very stressed. So all of those factors are going to impact how well kids are going to return to the world, how well adults are going to um, function right now. Um, and obviously, you know, the more resilient, the less stressors a person has, they're going to do better. So this is a fascinating conversation and 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 topic, and and I think that uh, one of the things that I I'm thinking in my mind is you know I, first of all I have to say I, I love part of your bio there where you talk about the snarkiness of kids. <laughs> uh, none of us have had snarky kids before, and I didn't know that was a clinical term, but apparently it is. But, I'm not saying it's clinical, Mark. I'm just saying. <laughs> great description. I'm a teenager, you know. But we all, but we all can appreciate that uh, those of us who have had snarky kids, but but as we're as you're sharing your thoughts with us there, I I understand that that uh, there are clinical issues that are coming out probably more so now than ever before. What are some of the signs that maybe parents could be looking for, or maybe some of the things that they've even seen during the last thirteen months with their children? Yeah inside the house more? Such a a fantastic question because, you know, um, a really startling statistic for most people, but it isn't a surprise to me. uh, NAMI, the National Institute of Mental Health in 2019, uh, said that through research that it takes 11 years from the onset of a mental health problem before somebody gets appropriate help. And I know that's shocking to people, But I'm going to tell you, I see it every day. Um, So what are some of the signs and symptoms that we need to look out for? So first of all, kids show us their distress. Okay. They're not going to say, mom, I'm having a rough day. I, I want to talk to a therapist. They're going to show signs like irritability, changes in behaviors, sleep problems, um, anger, stomach aches, headaches. They're going to show somatic signs of anxiety and depression. And that's what parents need to look for. And um, also one of the biggest problems, Mark, that parents, you know, face is that they may suspect there's a problem, but in our American culture, we use grades as a benchmark of mental health. And when we use grades as a benchmark of mental health, it's never a good idea. Most people with mental health issues, kids and adults, are highly functional in some area of their life. And so when a parent suspects that their child may be struggling, it's they probably are. And it's a good idea to 
look for ways to help support their nervous system, potentially to see a therapist, um, get their own parent coaching to find ways to help their kids. But many, many kids live with anxiety, depression, OCD, other clinical issues, and do well in school, but struggle in some other area, whether it's um, you know, getting along with their siblings or having friends or maybe have social anxiety. I see that a lot. So we, we have to stop that in our culture to use the grades as a benchmark. There, there was a time, I think, in all of our lives when maybe our parents, it was a, if, if you were experiencing some difficulties, it was a, it was a suck it up, suck a buttercup type <laughs> of a moment, you know? And, and uh, I, I think that we grew up with, with the kind of a stigma that you don't need to see professional help. Uh, professional help is for the weak. And uh, son, daughter, you're anything but weak. Do you, do you find that uh, cross-generational issues exhibit themselves when we're trying to deal with our children's mental health? Um, for sure. I think there still is, you know, listen, we've come so far. This is my 30th year in mental health. And I do feel like the conversations about mental health today are so much more open, right? I couldn't even imagine some of these conversations, right? Um, that we're having about a lot of different things in different ways. And there's a lot of positive around it. But we also have a very archaic mental health system. And our mental health system is largely based on that you have a clinical issue and um, we think there's a magic pill for things, right? So Mm -hmm. when you talk about fixing it, people are now believing they can take a pill and not do behavioral therapeutic work. We're moving away from that and that we we somehow think, okay, I'm going to take an anti-anxiety medication, but I don't have to stop these behaviors, these worries I have. I don't have to do that work because nobody wants to feel uncomfortable anymore. So even though we're more open to therapy, it was the number one New Year's resolution going into 2021 was to go to therapy. Um, so wow. How cool, right? I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, it also meant people were totally stressed out by 2020. Um, <laughs> but and it replaced you losing weight. Yeah. But I don't know. We really have become a, a society that doesn't like to be uncomfortable. And and we're parenting our kids like, oh my gosh, they they got a bad test grade. Let me call the teacher. You know, like mm-hmm. Nobody wants to have stress tolerance and having stress tolerance is resiliency is where you learn how to cope. Because as you know, life doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. And, um, and you have to have internal resilience to deal with things. So as much as I love this conversation that we're having about mental health, we do not have a system that it's teaching people really how to reduce and reverse those symptoms and how to build coping skills. It is not set up that way. And really, you know, when you brought up the the part about parenting and trying to fix all the problems that our children might have, you know, you you didn't get great test score or the participation trophy, because you don't want anyone to feel bad that they didn't win the championship. Right. 
you know, we take these things away or that, you know what, one of our children may have made a really dumb mistake and we want to fix it without there being consequences. That's right. And those are the things that help to build the resiliency when we step back and say, well, sorry, son or daughter, but that was a really poor choice. But now you get to deal with this over here. And, and I think that sometimes we're afraid. We're afraid of what people will think of us if our children fail at something or they're not the best. And so we want to fix it as opposed to helping them to gain these skills and get to the root cause of whatever that mental health issue might be or that anxiety or that depression. Maybe more so now than ever. And, you know, just case in point, we have a daughter that uh, teaches the fifth grade and uh, she's been teaching for how many years now? It's ten, probably about 10 years. And we, we love parent-teacher conference time because she comes back with some real doozy of stories there. And, and it seems to be that the stories that she's telling us are focusing more and more on the why the child isn't able to produce at the level that she thinks that they're able to produce. But there's excuse after excuse after excuse. Are you finding that as well? You know, oh, there's so many layers to this, Mark. There is a reason why I have a magic wand at my desk. Um, Because as I just did right before this podcast, three times I pulled it out in my intake to let them know that what our treatment was going to do was not going to be a magic wand. So, you know, we are becoming a fast food, quick overnight society, right? And we don't want to work. We don't want to do things. And, and, you know, I talk about reversing mental health issues. Nobody talks about that. And it's a combination of using these evidence-based approaches, holistic approaches, but it's a combination that also includes behavioral change and doing things that require practice and effort. Just like Annette said, um, letting our kids fail, right? That's what learning through your young adulthood is all about, right? We were allowed to fail. We were allowed to make mistakes. Um, It didn't show up on Facebook or in a group chat. And I think that's a part of it. And we didn't, nobody, not everybody was an A student. I wasn't an A student until I went to college. I'm just going to tell everybody I did okay. I graduated early with my doctorate. Um, (laughs) And so it, it is a very different time with a different set of circumstances. So what does it boil down to? First of all, we have parents are overworked and, and, and maxed out. Right. But we, we don't know how to do things in a long term. Yes. You could say, Oh, we do it in athletics. Right. But we have to build this tolerance. We have to do things in an order and there is no quick fix. Right. And I also think what's really interesting about school is boy, these kids are pushed hard and there is a lot of expectations for these kids that are not developmentally appropriate. So your daughter's been teaching 10 years. I'm going to tell you that, you know, I, I'm a trained educational psychologist and up to a couple of years ago, I was doing neuropsych testing, psychoed testing. And 10, 15 years ago, what kids did in school was different than what they're doing now. And a perfect example of that is about 10 years ago, maybe 12, 
what a kid did in first grade uh, was very different. And now the third grade work is now expected in first grade in terms of writing. And so there's dual sides to this. We're asking kids to stretch themselves in a way that doesn't make sense. And then the other way is we don't want to our kids to have to work as hard either. So it's a very, very complex, multifaceted issue in terms of education. But I also believe we're, we're not allowing our kids enough play and free time, um, which the research says results in greater success financially and academically and greater happiness. I agree with everything you're saying. And I think it's. I like you even more, Annette. Thank you. <laughs> we overschedule our children. We cover for our children. I think that's yeah. the one thing mm-hmm. that upsets our daughter the most is as a parent, you know, don't try to make up the excuses. The Just yeah. accept it. Okay, okay it. we'll go home and we'll work on this. Yeah. You know, but but that overscheduling so that they are busy from sunup to sundown, instead of being able to go out and play, you know, hide and go seek or kick the can or whatever yeah. and get off the devices. There's so much healing and learning and growing that comes just with playing. And that's why so many kids had a hard time during the pandemic. Oh I'm yeah, I'm going to tell you the Hodge kids, we didn't really skip a beat. We missed hanging out with people, but our day-to-day life really wasn't that different. Because my kids are definitely not overscheduled. They probably are underscheduled. <laughs> um, we didn't really notice things except we weren't, we're big entertainers and we didn't, and we traveled a lot. So those kind of things, but we're, we're cool. We made it, you know, we made it happen. But a lot of our kids had such a level of sports and activities that it was very hard for them to be without it. And that's perfectly okay. Like I get that, but over scheduled to the point where kids would come into me and they'd be like, well, I have to stay up till one o'clock in the morning. It's not possible for me to not get my homework done. Well, that's a conversation. Your kid shouldn't be in three advanced placement classes. Then, you know, he's really not designed to be able to do that. And they're like, well, that's what all the other kids do, you know? So we're, we're prioritizing the academics again over the, over the mental health of kids, you know, and that's not okay. So let's jump back a little bit to the mental health a little bit. I think that um, during this whole pandemic, everyone to a certain degree has felt anxiety. They felt depression. What's the difference or is there a difference between the two? And then kind of a two, you know, a three-parter here. If you can jump from educating us on what that is to you use these proven techniques. Can you teach us a little bit about what you do besides a pill? Oh, I would love to talk about that. So let's talk about the difference between stress and clinical issues like anxiety and depression. And anxiety and depression actually can look very similar and can be hard to distinguish between the two, um, which is sometimes surprising to people. So stress. We have a system that is designed to handle stress responses. It's called our autonomic nervous system. And so um, we all face stressors, right? So like you... um, uh, didn't you're you were expecting a package and you needed it for a school project and it didn't get in, 
oh my gosh, you're you're totally stressed out. So our relaxed state is parasympathetic and our um, stress state is sympathetic. So your nervous system goes to a sympathetic, it goes to this maximum capacity. If you have a healthy system, it comes back down. And that's what helps us deal with stressors in our body. And there's all these hormones and neurotransmitters that get released. Now, when you have chronic long-term stress, right, which is what is happening to people right now, it can lead to clinical conditions. It can lead to things like anxiety and depression. I often see anxiety and then depression because you, we are not designed to be under chronic long-term stress or have anxiety for a long time. Um, and, you know, what is the definition of a clinical issue is it's interfering with your daily functioning in some way. It's interfering with your relationships. It's interfering with school or work. You know, there's some type of significant impact, right? And you can be functioning in one area and then really struggling in another. And so, you know, anxiety, we talked about some of the symptoms of anxiety in kids, but anxiety and depression, how they can overlap and look the same is, and and you can have sort of these internalizers and externalizers, right? So internalizers are people that hold it in, maybe withdraw, maybe get emotional. Then on the externalizer side, you can be angry, easily irritated, more volatile. And then there can be an overlap and sort of a mishmash in the middle. And anxiety and depression can look very much the same. We always think that a depressed person is somebody who's like not getting out of their bed, but they can also be that highly volatile, angry person too, as well as an anxious person can look like that. So it has a lot to do with a clinical intake and, and helping people to understand that. And, you know, um, there are lots of ways to treat anxiety and depression, OCD, other clinical issues, right? Social anxiety, whatever is, whatever is going on. Um, and a pill is only one way. And in mental health, we, we think everything is biochemical. I'm here to tell you that it's often not biochemical and it's not often genetic. What, it, what are some of the biggest reasons is chronic long-term stress, um, inflammation, and stressors, right? Stressors. Yes, there's a biochemical impact, but it doesn't start with biochemical. And, you know, thanks to good marketing, we all think that a pill is going to fix it. So let's talk about, we, we know some of these sources, which might be surprising to people and in inflammation. Uh, it's a known associated issue with a source of, of um, mental health issues. And I didn't even mention infectious disease because uh, covid Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr, um, many other uh, infectious diseases can lead to mental health issues. So some of my favorite treatments that are evidence-based, and I talk about in my book, It's Gonna Be Okay, um, and I named my book It's Gonna Be Okay because it's what I tell every parent that I'm gonna, that I work with. We need to hear that when we're struggling. Um, and I always have a path. If you're willing to trust me and willing to, you know, do the work, there's always a way to make things better, right? And it starts with mindset. Um, but what are some clinical ways that we can improve our mental health? So number one, breath work. So really trying to regulate your breath is hugely positively impactful on your nervous system and your mental health. Um, and my favorite type of breath is a four, seven, eight. So you're breathing in for four, you're holding for seven and you're exhaling um, 
exhalation for eight seconds. Um, it can be quite traumatic and it's the quickest way to regulate your nervous system. Um, I'm a big fan of meditation. I'm a big fan of prayer, gratitude journaling. These are all ways to really get at that subconscious and to help proactively regulate the nervous system. We can't just wish we're going to feel different. We have to make that time. And it can be as little as 10 minutes a day if you're really struggling with clinical issues. You want to try to do that at least three times a day, 10 minutes a day. And when we get our nervous system down into this regulated state, and the more we practice that, the more things change. Um, Now, Annette, you and I were talking before we started this conversation, and I am a neurofeedback provider. And it is an amazing tool, right? It is an amazing tool. It's something that I personally have used. And that was one of the things that caught my eye when I started researching about you is that you were a neurofeedback provider. Yeah. And it's not something that we often hear. So share with everyone what neurofeedback is. Yeah. Um, so neurofeedback is an evidence-based way to regulate the brain. It's been around 50 years. There's over 10,000 research studies, um, actually tens of thousands, and 3,000 peer-reviewed studies. And, you know, I got involved in it because I was seeing more and more kids who just were not only not responding to medication and talk therapy, they were getting worse by it. And so, you know, I went and looked at the microfiche. It was that long ago. And (laughs) I found neurofeedback and I was like, why are we not doing neurofeedback? It was pretty amazing. And I met a little boy who, who went and did it and I just changed my world. And I, he was the most impaired kid I'd ever worked with in terms of attention. And he was so impulsive. Like he was the kind of kid that if I turned to the left he would literally be climbing the wall. Like when you were like, what is he climbing? You know what I mean? (laughs) And I had literally never worked with anybody like this. And I had worked with some pretty extreme cases. I was working in psychiatric hospitals. Um, Fast forward, Alec, which is not his real name, is an adult and is the the most chill human beings I've ever known in my life. And he's, you know, happy and well-adjusted and successful in all the ways that you would want your kid to be successful. Um, He's a pretty spectacular human being. But what is neurofeedback? So neurofeedback is based on something called operant conditioning, and you are essentially tapping into the subconscious and you're learning through a process, and I'll I'll visually explain it, a process of um, measurement and reinforcement to produce a healthy combination of brainwaves. So the technology is a computer. You're putting sensors on your ears and on your head, and after somebody like me uh, determines what your protocol is, you're typically pushing down and increasing increasing a brainwave. And within two to three seconds of the first time you're hooked up, your subconscious brain will say, oh, if I push this down and increase this, I get this visual and auditory uh, feedback. Now, what you probably did is what I do, which is movies. So movies won't play if your brain doesn't change itself. Well, your subconscious brain, which is running the show 95% or more of the time, is literally says, 
oh my gosh, I got to get this darn movie to play. And it produces this combination of brainwaves. Now, just like working out, you can't go to the gym one time. You need a series of sessions. And you most people are never doing less than 20 sessions. And it can be 40 or more, depending on your clinical issue. It is highly evidence-based. The research, as far as 10 years out, shows that the changes are lasting um, and that many times the brain is even better 10 years or six months or three years out. And um, it's used from everything from anxiety, depression, trauma, ADHD, concussion. I mean, I can go on with a list. Um, I work with a lot of kids with pans and pandas and individuals affected by Lyme. I do a lot of work with that. It's, as you said, it's a game changer in mental health for a lot of people. And it's shocking for people. They just are like, why didn't I hear about this? What's going on? Well, there's not a lot of us. There's people all over the world and it requires an unbelievable amount of training. Um, and it is, but it is a wonderful tool. It's, it's really an investment in your health and it's safe and it's natural and it's ridiculously effective. You know, one thing that when you were talking, one of the the thoughts I had, you know, listeners need to realize that we're always conscious and we're always aware with what's going on. It's not like we're being there's, it's not hypnosis no, or one of those types of things, you know, that some people may be concerned about. It's very much, I would sit back, like you said, and I'd watch a movie. Yeah. And it, it, it was amazing and what, what it allowed me to do in, in yeah. my healing journey. And what happens is the brain gets dysregulated for a lot of reasons. You know, sometimes like I have many cases of birth trauma. Um, I have, you know, your brain gets dysregulated over long-term stress. Um, I do peak performance with executives that just through aging and chronic stress where they're not as sharp, right? Um, all the, all the, um, major athletes do this. Um, so it's done for these peak performance things. Astronauts do it before they go to space. They're mandated to do this. A lot of musicians do this. It is why I wrote it was able to write four books in four months during the pandemic, one one of which was 420 pages. Um, so it really, you know, didn't you feel like it crisped your thinking and calmed you at the same time? It really did. That ability to focus, that came pretty quickly. Yeah. In, in that. And that was... And so it really crazy. helped regulate your sleep, that disrupted sleep pattern. It really helped to regulate your sleep, right? It did. Yeah. It really did. And and I like how it's used all over. It's not just for those with trauma or ADHD or, you know, whatever, all these different health issues and concerns, but in the peak performance as well. Yes. And I hadn't thought about, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And, um, well, you know, what's so interesting, Annette, is that sometimes people will come to me And this is the most common situation that occurs is there's been a concussion, right? And um, they get to me by word of mouth or searching on the internet. And they'll say to me, I'm actually better than I was pre-concussion because I can do the peak performance stuff too, especially when there hasn't been a clinical issue before. But I mean, you know, so many people have anxiety and depression, ADD and stuff like that. It's not, it's, it's almost abnormal when I get somebody who's never had anything and then they have an, a brain injury kind of situation. So um, it is, it's a really pretty amazing tool. And I love that you said, it's not, I'm not controlling 
your brain, you are learning to regulate your own brain and get it into this healthy rhythm. We know we know exactly what the brain does. We know which areas are working and not when we're doing neurofeedback and you're able to reinforce your own brain to produce that healthy combination of brain waves to get it reset, right? And, and I like to call it rewiring the brain, but the person is completely in charge and it's a lovely, pleasant process. You so know. it's really refreshing to hear you say that because uh, I, I reflect back 15 years ago when when our son had just finished a uh, surgery. Uh, he had a cavernous hemangioma that was removed from the middle of his brain. And, uh, you know, some of those neurotransmitters were no longer connected. And it seemed to us at the time that uh, the only the only thing that they wanted to do was to give him more medication, yeah. and more medication. And, and we, we realized that that had serious, serious side effects as well. Yeah. We wish we would have known about neurofeedback 15 yeah. years ago, because it would have made, you know, a difference in the quality of his. Well, life. and I'm so sorry. And, you know, what happens is with medication, which is the standard of care in mental health now, and it, and, it, and it even influences, pharma influences how we're diagnosing people in our diagnostic and statistical manual, and therapists feel that they can recommend medication, yet they don't feel comfortable recommending things like essential oils yeah. and dietary changes. And you can start a Facebook fight in two seconds in a therapist group by, <laughs> by saying, what about an anti-inflammatory diet? Even though there's tons of research and there's no harm in an anti, nobody's ever been harmed by an anti-inflammatory diet. But what happens in psychiatric medication every single time, every single psychiatric medication has a toxic effect. There is not one that doesn't. And so it becomes a matter of ADD medication. 100% of people in research have a side effect from ADD medication. So it becomes a risk, or I should say side effect benefit analysis. People say, well, I'm going to tolerate this side effect because I feel better here, right? I don't even know if I get people who feel better here. Today, I had intakes where every single person said, I literally have never felt anything positive on these medications, right? So then what happens is you start Googling. And I'm a big fan of Googling, right? And finding information. You don't have to look too hard to see their evidence-based approaches, right? You know, I created my book, It's Going to Be Okay, so you didn't have to be a Google MD, but it's got 40 pages of research. So I want people to know they have to be their own CEO and that they can do their own looking and deciding and evaluating. And we have to stop believing that pharma is going to be the answer because what we need to do is we need to be scientific. We need to look to the research. We need to understand neuroscience and we need to use that to inform how we better help people with mental health issues, behavioral struggles, social struggles, because boy, is this on the rise amongst our kids. Yeah. And we're not going to be able to manage what's going to happen. Forget about the pandemic. This is going on long before that. So so May 11th is coming up pretty quick. Yeah. We've got something special happening on May 11th. 
Yes, my book, It's Gonna Be Okay, is coming out on May 11th. <laughs> it is gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. My pre-sale link is up now. It's gonna be on Amazon. And I'm super excited. I'm grateful. And this is my, you know, I I have done a boatload of media, um, hundreds of appearances. I've reached well over 2 billion people. We stopped counting that. And I'm really on a mission to let people know, you know, we have to change how we're viewing and treating mental health problems, right? And this book is the culmination of all my work. I talk about the eight pillars to reduce and reverse mental health um, and that people can use this as sort of an a la carte, like, oh, I want to focus on diet because that's one of Roseanne's pillars. Oh, I want to focus on genetic mutations. Sometimes people are like me, we jump all in, but a lot of times we're overwhelmed. And what we have to start realizing is that little waves create big waves. And if you take one action and you're consistent with it, maybe it's that meditation. Maybe it's gratitude journaling every day when you wake up to try to change how you believe things, right? Um, Maybe it's walking with your neighbor, Betty, every night, you know, and making, have an accountability partner. And, And why would you walk? Because neurotransmitters go, your lymph strain, there's so many, and you have social interaction with Betty. Um, my name, my walking butter buddy is Tracy in my neighborhood. Um, and so we have to start believing and having hope and we have to realize we are the CEOs and we can't give that power away to these medical doctors who are one track, right? They don't even have training in nutrition. Most medical doctors have never taken a course in nutrition, and that's shocking. That doesn't mean there's not a time and place for medication, but we cannot lead with it, and we absolutely cannot lead with it with kids' mental health, and we need to teach people that there are things that they can do and take action on, and they have a positive effect because they feel so hopeless. I mean, everybody I deal with feels so hopeless, which is why I say it's going to be okay. Um, because I want people to know you can do these things to reduce and reverse your symptoms. And it comes down to, again, one of the first parts of this discussion was it's going to take work. It takes, you know, being effective effort and going through the process. And I think sometimes maybe that's why we, we might jump to the medical, to the, to the, to pharmos because we hope it's just going to be a quick fix and we don't feel like we have that energy or time to dive in to get to the root cause. And reality is when I started to dive in and I focused on the physical, the spiritual, and the emotional, that's when the healing happened. It wasn't one piece at a time. I had to find some balance and not that you're always, you know, balanced, but by doing it all together, and focusing on those three things, that's, you know, hope started to shine. And and that light, you know, I, I always used to think that life was a little bit fair to partly cloudy. And now, you know, the sun's shining. And, and life is okay. And it doesn't matter what comes our way. Life is going to be okay. Yeah. And I love that, you know, when you do connect mind, body, and spirit, which we talk about, But that's not what we're doing in mental health. We're only saying it's biochemical. We're not ignoring spiritual. You know, we're ignoring spiritual. We're ignoring the body. You know, 60 to 70% of people through research 
have a co-occurring or a driving medical issue that is leading to mental health issues. But why aren't we suggesting that everybody get a certain medical panel when you have a mental health issue? I mean, we're just ignoring what's out there. But, you know, you're right. We, we have to connect the dots. We have to do that work. But I believe people don't know what to do. And that's what I wrote this book. I want to give them a roadmap. And I hope this is an eye opener. I know it's written for parents, but I'm going to tell you these eight pillars are for anybody. Um, It's just that for me, I know, as you know, when your kid is suffering, nothing else matters. It's the worst. And um, I see people every day in a panic, just out of hope. And just all these negative things are up all night worrying. Um, And I'm a special needs mom. I get it. I've been there too. And so I want people to really give them, you know, uh, the tools, the way, and really that, that belief, right? Because it's all about believing there is another way. When you run out of hope, nothing positive is going to happen because you're stuck. You've got to get that hope going and create that vision of healing. Exactly. And that's what Karen the Load's all about. You know, you've created this Karen through your book. It's going to be okay. Each of us have a story to share. Author Brene Brown reminds us that owning your story is the bravest thing you will ever do. The stories and experiences our guests share inspire us as well as help us to grow and connect with others. We invite you to become a part of Karen the Load community through social media, as well as to share the site with those you know. We are stronger together. Keep Karen. Mm -hmm.